In this passage from 2 Kings that we've just heard read, there are four characters that stand out to me. The first is Naaman. Naaman was a powerful man. He was the commander of the army of Aram or Syria. He was a man of valor, a powerful man. But he was also a sick man. The text says he was a leper. Actually, the word is broader than our English word. It can refer to a number of diseases of the skin. So whatever this disease was that Naaman had, it didn't hinder him from making a very long trip from Damascus to Samaria. He could do that. And it could be that a lot of people didn't even know he was sick, but he was sick. Outwardly powerful, but also sick. Now, the next two characters are kings. The king of Aram, or the king of Syria, and the king of Israel. Kings. They carried the political authority, political power. But it's obvious from the account that although they carried political power, they had almost no ability to meet true human need. And that is the story of the kings of Israel. Remember that Samuel, the people came to Samuel back in the days of the judges and said, we want a king, and Samuel was grieved because God was to be their king. God was to be their ruler, but the people wanted a king like the nations. They wanted to be like the nations. And God said to Samuel, look, don't, be, don't worry about this. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. So go ahead and give them a king, but tell them what it's going to mean. And so the history of the kings of Israel is a sad history. It's a history of gradual and ultimately total spiritual decline. There are bright spots like David, but even David, in carrying political power, it affected him. And God said, David, I'm not going to let you build a temple because you have been a man of war. Not that being a man of war was in itself bad, but it had to do with the consequences of carrying the political power. So David himself was affected by this. But as you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, it just gets sadder and sadder. The kings of Israel led Israel into idolatry and ultimately into exile and judgment. Now, as God watched the decay of political power, God responded in two ways. The first way he responded, he raised up the prophet. Prophets are different than kings. They don't have political power. They don't have military power. They don't have financial power. Often they don't have social power. They have authority from God. They carry spiritual authority. That's the prophet. And the more Israel sunk into spiritual decay and idolatry, the more God raised up the prophets who carried true authority, namely God's authority. And we see this in the reading, don't we? I mean, it, it gets to the point where the king of Israel is really feels threatened that the king of Syria is sending his army commander here to get healed. The king, of, what, what is he trying to do? Is he trying to expose my vulnerability? And Elisha, when he hears of it, he says, send him to me that he might know there's a prophet in Israel. Can you hear the authority of those words? 
the prophet. So there's an army commander, there are two kings, and then there's a prophet who carried true spiritual authority. And because Elisha, the prophet, carried true spiritual authority, part of that is discernment. The prophet begins by being in the presence of God. And living in the presence of God, the prophet hears the heart of God. And hearing the heart of God gives the prophet discernment. So the prophet typically lives in a context of darkness. Everybody around is lacking discernment, but they don't know it. They don't have enough discernment to know they have no discernment. And so the prophet carries the discernment of God. And Elisha saw what Naaman's real need was. Yes, he needed to be cleansed from his leprosy. But Elisha saw the arrogance. He saw the anger. And Elisha, in the wisdom that comes from being in the presence of God, called Naaman to do very simple things to reveal his real needs. Elisha didn't appear to Naaman. He sent a messenger. That offended Naaman. Naaman thought, you know, I'm an important person, commander of the army sent by the king of Syria. What is this prophet sending me a messenger? He should come himself. And then Elisha says to Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. It's pretty simple. Go wash seven times. And Naaman gets offended at that as well. Aren't there rivers in Syria? I could have washed there. He was telling me to do this stupid thing. So Elisha, without even going to Naaman, reveals the inner issues. You ever have prayers that aren't answered right away? Now, that's a big subject that takes more than one message. But if you're praying for something, really praying for something, on and on and on, it's not happening. Know this is a possibility. There is a possibility that before God answers that prayer that you're praying, there are other issues that God is going to deal with of which you are at this point unaware. Because God is into transformation. We want God to answer this prayer. God wants to make us new people. We want God to solve this problem. God wants to make us like Jesus. And to make us like Jesus, there's this issue and that issue and the other issue that needs to be dealt with. The prophet saw that and by a simple word exposed the anger and arrogance in Naaman. And his Naaman's servant said, look, you know, he's just asking you to do something really simple. Why don't you just humble yourself and do it? So whatever process Naaman went through, he did it. Humbled himself. And the results were healing and joy. Those final words from Naaman, now I know that there is a God in Israel. King. Political power. Prophet. Authority from God. Where does the church belong? What is the church's role? Is the church's role with the political power? Or is the church's role with the prophet? Is the church a political 
community? Or is the church a prophetic community? Well, I'm not going to answer that. Something for you to think about, pray about, come to your own conclusion. Let me just give you a couple of, put a couple of logs on the fire for you to consider. The first is, the political powers of his day were hostile to Jesus. Jesus did not live under political powers that were with him. It wasn't the political power that would bring his agenda into being. The political powers were hostile to him. In fact, the Jewish leaders, which is another way to say the leaders of Israel, the leaders of God's people, were in bed with the political power. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the Jewish leader said, we have no king but Caesar. And that was right. That was, that was true. They said, said something true then. They had no king but Caesar. And Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said to the disciples, if the world hates you, you could also translate that since, since the world hates you, or if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then Jesus went on to say, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We are not of the world. We are in the world for sure sent by God into the world, but not of the world. Jesus was not of the world. The apostles lived under political powers that were hostile to them also. You know, they served a different king. They represented a different kingdom. The apostles in the early church, they didn't represent Rome. Rome wasn't their kingdom. They served a different king. They represented a different kingdom. I don't know why it's on my heart this morning. I just want to read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians 4 that has been really meaningful to me. I remember preaching from this passage in 1967 in Cicero Bible Church in Chicago during an OM conference. I remember the message. Awesome. I don't know how I remember that. I don't remember all the things I should remember. But this message gives us just a little insight into what it is to belong to a different kingdom. Listen to the words of Paul. 1 Corinthians 4.9 For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you, he's talking to those who challenge his authority, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted. 
We are homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. You want to sign up for that? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. The apostles did not live in political systems that were friendly to them. We could go on. Before us, there's 1,600 years, brothers and sisters, 1,600 years of history where the church has sought a marriage with the political authority and sought to impose Christian behavior and Christian values through laws. And it is an ugly history. It is an ugly history. Why? Because you can't impose godliness by law. Godliness must come from the heart. You are created in the image of God. What is it in you that is most like God? It is your heart. The capacity to choose. The capacity to create. And that heart is where the decision was made when I went away from God and you went away from God. It happened in the heart. And Jesus came to call us back to a fresh decision of the heart to be honest about our sins, to repent and grieve of the horror of our sins, and to, by faith, become his follower and live the life that he came to give us. 1,600 years. Most Christians have lived in political systems hostile to them. It's true today. Where is the church growing? Well, we all know, especially we Anglicans, we know about Africa. The church has grown in Africa in the midst of some very difficult and hostile political environments. I tell you, another place the church is growing like hot cases, China. All kinds of stories about the growth of the church in China. Another place the church is growing is Iran. Think of that. I mean, we keep getting stories of people coming to Jesus in Iran, etc., etc. So most Christians don't live in a political environment that they can look to to uh, do their work for them. How is the prophetic calling developed? How is this prophetic calling developed? Let me just give you four things. Number one, we learn how to live in God's presence. Two, in God's presence, we hear God's heart. Have you ever heard the heart of God? Where do we hear the heart of God? In his presence, in his presence, in his presence. Three, in God's presence, we are separated. And then we speak and live out God's heart in a darkened world. In God's presence, we are formed in God's likeness. So here's the point I want to make. The prophetic message 
cannot be separated from the prophetic messenger. The message cannot be separated from the messenger because the message is a message of holiness. And if the messenger is not living holiness, the life of the messenger denies the message. What was Jesus' message? In a very real sense, Jesus himself was the message. What is the gospel? Well, we can get into theological talk, and that, that's a place, that is a place. This theological thesis and that theological thesis and the other theological thesis. But you know, another way to preach the gospel is just simply talk about Jesus. He's the message. What was the message of the apostles? Paul was the message. Peter was the message. John was the message. What was the message of the church under the persecution in the Roman Empire? The church was the message. The word went out. Oh, these Christians, how they love one another. And in the midst of persecution, and in the midst of being told that they were illegitimate, and in the midst of being told that they were idolatrous, the church swept through the Roman Empire. It was a prophetic community. I want to close with a wonderful story. I think it's a wonderful story. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Oh, brothers and sisters, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. You know, I lived for five years in India. Hannah and I were married in India. I lived for a year and a half in Calcutta. Calcutta is a city today with 15 million people. Wherever you go in Calcutta, there are just the masses and the masses and the masses of people. There are wealthy people in Calcutta. I remember one day walking through one of the wealthy areas of Calcutta. The sidewalk is just full of people because, you know, there's so many people, the sidewalk can't hold them. And there was a beggar. He had no arms and no legs. That often happens. Children are born into beggar families, and they are maimed by their parents in order to make them better beggars. If somebody is maimed, you're more likely to give them money. So this person was an adult, no arms, no legs, rolling in the sidewalk, rolling in the sidewalk. In other words, he was so desperate to get attention. His needs were so great. The sidewalk was dirty. He was dirty. He was rolling in the sidewalk. And we had to step over him to keep going. This is Calcutta. Mother Teresa is Albanian, was Albanian. She was born in Macedonia. She's born in the Balkans. She's a Balkan, was a Balkan. She's short. She wouldn't ever win a beauty contest, Mother Teresa. But if you look in her face, she's a beautiful woman because the soul is reflected in the face. And her soul was formed by being in the presence of Jesus. And she went to Calcutta and she taught in a school. And one day God called her to serve the poorest of the poor. And she left the comfortable life in the school and went out into the streets of Calcutta looking for the poorest of the poor. And she and those who joined her began to take people off the sidewalks that were about to die because every day people die Beggars die. They don't have any food. They don't have any clothing. They don't have any water. They simply die on the sidewalk. She and her sisters went out, 
to take these people that are about to die and bring them into her place and bathe them and give them water and give them food so that they might die in dignity. The poorest of the poor. And that work grew to 4,000 sisters that were part of it in 123 countries. But that's not the most important thing. This is what I want you to know. When Mother Teresa died, India, you know, India has 1,250,000,000 people. Try to get your head around that. 20% of the world lives in India. 85% Hindu. Something like 12 to 15 percent Muslim, officially three to four percent Christian, although we hear a lot of stories that are a lot more than that. India as a nation rose up to honor Mother Teresa. The Hindu government honored her, the Muslims honored her, the Christians honored her. Why? Because she was a prophetic life. She carried a prophetic witness. She lived a prophetic life. And the Hindu-dominated, Muslim-influenced, political establishment honored her. In the midst of it all, they heard God through her life. And they saw Jesus through her life. Brothers and sisters, anybody here hungry for God? Anybody here tired of the normal? Go deep with God. We live in the midst of a world filled with darkness. Darkness is listening to the darkness and becoming darker. In the midst of it all, oh God, raise up your church as a prophetic witness to the lostness all around us. Let us pray. Father, have mercy upon us. Move among us. Make us a prophetic community that we might speak and live the life and word and truth and salvation of Jesus to the lost all around us. Do this for your glory, we pray, our Father, in Jesus' name.